0: And, of course, the first case on the calendar for argument is the cardio flow case.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Glenn Danis for Appellant Cardiovascular Systems. Uh, May it please the court. Uh, As we explained in our recent supplemental briefing at the court's request, uh, the district court here lacked jurisdiction over this case, and uh, this case should be remanded to the state court where it was initially filed. Uh, There was no federal patent jurisdiction for the reasons we explained. The case does not actually arise under the patent laws uh, making removal improper. Uh, Because CSI's remand motion was timely under this Court's ruling in Holbein, uh, this Court's ruling in Holbein explaining that a jurisdictional defect can be raised at any time, but uh, non-jurisdictional defects must be raised within 30 days, CSI's uh, jurisdictional defects-only motion remand was timely, uh, and if the court has any questions about that, i would be happy to get into it. Uh, otherwise, uh, on the merits, reversal is required, if the court gets to it, for two primary reasons. Uh, one, because cardio flow was bound as a function of equitable estoppel, in this case. And two, because cardio fl- flow was bound to the settlement agreement between Ms. Nadirashvili and CSI by principles of agency. Uh, Under equitable estoppel, uh, there's a long, uh, centuries-long tradition of the doctrine being applied flexibly, including uh, in cases discussed by this Court and by the Minnesota Supreme Court, that equitable estoppel is a flexible doctrine that is used to do justice, uh, especially where a rigid application of rules of law would not necessarily apply. This is precisely that kind of situation. Uh, As we explained here, uh, by acceptance of the benefits-style equitable estoppel, cardio flow was bound to the agreement. We showed in record evidence that there was prior knowledge on the part of um, cardio flow via Mr. Petrucci of the contents of the settlement agreement, uh, which would include, of course, Section 10 and the provision that says that any assignee of the Uh, of the patents that were divided by the settlement agreement must uh, agree in writing to be bound by the settlement agreement.
2: Counsel, what about the district uh, court's conclusion that um, there just weren't sufficient facts pleaded uh, to, to make up equitable estoppel?
1: Yes, so uh, we explained, uh, and there was no Eighth Circuit case that was directly on point. Uh, there was a case, Allen versus A.H. Robbins, a Ninth Circuit case, which discussed that where the elements of equitable estoppel are uh, amply pleaded, uh, that is sufficient to make out the allegation of equitable estoppel under normal Rule Eight notice pleading. Um, in fact, in that case, they said that in their second amended complaint, the Allens do not use the term equitable estoppel in stating their claims. They do, however, allege all of the elements of equitable estoppel. And in, uh, in this case, in the, in the operative complaint, we said that the, uh, the cardio flow was bound because, specifically, they accepted all of the, uh, the fruits of the agreement and, therefore, had to be bound by the obligations of the agreement that they had actual, actual notice of and that they benefited greatly from. Uh, we explained that in two different Minnesota Supreme Court cases, uh, Suski and Bassage, uh, this style of equitable estoppel was applied on precisely these kinds of facts, where there was not necessarily uh, an express promise or inducement made, but in fact where there was just a retention of the benefits and the fruits of an agreement uh, both of those cases are Minnesota Supreme Court cases that are still good law. And then, of course, from this court, uh, the Carnets and lg cases, both of which applied equitable estoppel on very similar grounds. So, uh, to Your Honor's point, the, uh, we, we did allege it uh, sufficiently, uh, but there is no uh, Eighth Circuit case going one way or the other that I'm aware well, of. Well, the reason why I'm asking is because, um, you know, the, the, the complaint is, um, you know, fairly
2: detailed in parts. And I just wonder whether saying, they, were, they got the fruits of it and they kind of knew about it, or they did know about it, is enough to plead equitable stopple and put the other party on notice. That seems to me to be a little light, a little thin, and of course we're not bound by the Ninth Circuit case.
1: Uh, yes, that's absolutely true, Your Honor. There was a uh, Eighth Circuit case that we did cite in our papers as a CF directly after the Robbins case where this court explained that in pleading uh, a defense, the actual words uh, you know, the, are not talismanic in that way, but in fact it's about the substance of what is pleaded. Uh, in this case, uh, it seems quite clear that in a complaint, especially one that was as, as pointed as ours was, that where we said you're bound because you received uh, the benefits and therefore you have to uh, abide by the obligations, that should have been enough under Rule 8, um, certainly, to put them on notice of it. Uh, We also, uh, I think, uh, have explained that independently, uh, cardio flow was bound by principles of agency uh, under either a partnership slash joint venture model or uh, under a control uh, as explained by the Minnesota Supreme Court in Cargill. Um, in a joint venture situation, uh, you know the, the definition is where the parties have agreed to combine their efforts toward a common aim uh, that will make out a joint venture agreement even if there, if there wasn't necessarily a contract. Uh, I believe in Cardio Flow's uh, papers, they made the point that uh, corporations c- cannot form a joint venture under Minnesota law. That is, uh, that is not the case. There's a, uh, there are, uh, there's a Minnesota Supreme Court case, Krengel, K-R-E-N-G-E-L, from 1973, uh, and a Minnesota Court of Appeal case, Hansen, from 2000, both of which held that corporations can, in fact, form a joint venture. Um, Ms. Nadirashvili and Mr. Petrucci, uh, through CardioFlow, did agree to combine their efforts, in 2010, that's in the record at uh, AA 142. There was no legal relationship between them until 2012 and the assignment agreement. Uh, The assignment agreement uh, in the record at AA 86 says quite clearly that by this agreement, shares are given to Ms. Nadirashvili in exchange for uh, the patent portfolio that she was assigning. Uh, At a very minimum, there were genuine issues here for a trial. About so how, wait
2: a second I'm, I'm trying to follow so how could she have been the agent if she had no interest until the at the very point she got shares from cardio flow
1: so uh the district court's only basis for saying that there was no agency agreement here was because there was the district court believed that ms Shvili was a shareholder at the time of the execution of the settlement agreement uh there was an agency because there was no legal relationship there was an agency uh, conform under Minnesota law where there is, in fact, no legal relationship, but simply an agreement, not necessarily a contract, to combine efforts for a common cause um, and to share the profits, even if not necessarily the liabilities. This so is-
2: so the, the question then is, is is the argument then that Cardio Flow has, or um, Petrucci had such control over her that, that she de facto became an agent for, for CardioFlow?
1: Well, the, there are two different arguments. One of them would be that there's sort of this joint venture argument. They had an agreement uh, as early as 2010 that they were going to combine, let's form this thing, CardioFlow, one day, and it's going to take control of these patents and we're going to make some money out of it. That's in the record. Uh, that did not actually happen, the the giving of shares and the creation of a legal relationship until, until 2012. In 2010, Uh, a joint venture formed. A separate, under Minnesota law, theory is that there was an agency agreement by dint of control. Uh, The Cargill case talks about essentially where there's a situation, in that case, a creditor and a debtor, where the creditor was uh, in control of the debtor's finances 100%. Uh, The debtor had to get uh, approval for almost everything that it wanted to do. and, uh, and in that case, where there was an, an, a right to intrude on the privacy of the debtor, uh, that there was an agency agreement. And that was precisely what we showed, even if the district court had been correct, and Ms. Nardyarishvili had been a shareholder, so therefore a joint venture could not have been created. An agency relationship could have been created, and in fact was created, by dint of this kind of deep control. It would be unthinkable in a normal situation for someone uh, to have a right, like Mr. Petrucci did, to speak with the lawyers of a party in a case and to exercise control over the litigation. In this case, in the 2012 litigation between Ms. Nadirishvili and CSI, she retained um, very little control over the, over the litigation, it would seem. And Mr. Petrucci uh, admitted that during the course of the litigation, not even necessarily just when it was over, he was able to make sure that the two provisions that he quote-unquote cared about which were Sections 2 and 7, were in the agreement. Again, in a non-agency situation, that would be uh, very bizarre and unusual for someone to be able to intrude into the litigation like that. That's precisely the situation here. Let me ask you one additional
2: question. I don't don't mean to monopolize your
1: time, but I
2: want to get to this before you get to rebuttal, which is exclusive right and license. Um, You had a separate... I just want to figure out what's going on here, because that confused me. And the district judge said there's no exclusive right... Um, there's just an exclusive license and there's no actionable claim here. Um, You say, that's right. Um, There is no exclusive right, but we still win because there's an exclusive license. Please explain that to me.
1: Uh, sure, Your Honor. So, below the, uh, the two different theories that we pleaded were there, uh, as li- as theories of liability were that there's an exclusive right irrespective of the patents and then there's an exclusive license. The district court found that there was not an exclusive right, that there was an exclusive license and that the exclusive license survived the assignment to, uh, to cardio flow. We didn't take issue in the appeal with the exclusive right piece. So, the exclusive license, the court said, page 21, note 2, in its order, the court said, if there were privity of contract here, uh, CSI would have a viable claim for breach of that license agreement in the context of a contract action such as this one under the Federal Circuit's U.S. Valves case, which is precisely on point, and in which case there was uh, a permanent injunction granted to the exclusive licensee vis-a-vis the, the licensor. That would be precisely the case here. So what did we do? We moved for summary judgment just on the issue of privity. And that's the issue that we're taking uh, on appeal. If this court were to reverse and we were to go back down, uh, this speaks to the appellate jurisdiction argument that um, my, my colleague on the other side made out, uh, we would be able to go after a permanent injunction under the US Valves case. And that's precisely what we intend to do.
2: So it, should, so it just directly sends us into the agency and the, uh, and the equitable estoppel claims then? Right. Okay.
1: Unless Your Honors have any further questions, I'm going to save my remaining three minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Mr. Hall.
3: Good afternoon, and may may it please the court. Dan Hall here on behalf of the appellee CardioFlow, Inc. There is no live issue remaining in this case. CSI has never asserted a damages uh, theory, never presented any evidence of damages. CSI did not appeal the district court's construction of Section 3A of the settlement agreement, which the district court found disposed of CSI's declaratory judgment and injunctive relief claims. Uh, regardless of how this court decides the narrow, equitable estoppel and agency theories that CSI raised on appeal, the result is the same. CSI cannot obtain any redress from continuing with this lawsuit. I want to start by addressing some of the court's uh, questions regarding uh, jurisdiction before moving on to the merits of the case. Uh There was jurisdiction in the district court on two bases. There was ancillary jurisdiction because the district court retained jurisdiction over the settlement agreement that underlay each of the claims in this case. And there was also federal question jurisdiction because the case arises under federal patent law because CSI's properly pleaded complaint necessarily raised questions of federal law. Uh, Regardless of whether there... or as long as there is jurisdiction on any basis, this court should not remand to state court uh, because there was jurisdiction and CSI failed to raise an issue of, with removability aside from jurisdiction within 30 days. So any non-jurisdictional defect with removal was waived because CSI waited more than 30 days before seeking to remand. In terms of ancillary jurisdiction, It's well established that if a district court uses the language that the district court used in this case to retain jurisdiction over a settlement agreement, the court can continue to exercise jurisdiction over claims to enforce the settlement agreement. In this case, CSI's claims for breach of contract uh, and injunctive relief and declaratory relief.
0: If they do that, and if the underlying action the direct appeal had to be brought to the Federal Circuit. Isn't the Federal Circuit the place that has jurisdiction then? That being, if the patent uh, uh, question is necessarily before the court, if it must be construed in order to apportion uh, whatever remedies may exist here, doesn't that require uh, the jurisdiction be exclusively in the Federal Circuit?
3: The, the Federal Circuit does have case law that says that if you have retained jurisdiction, I think this is the Schmidt case, which we mm-hmm. said in our briefing, if there is retained jurisdiction over a claim that arose under federal patent law, and it's indisputable that the original case, which CSI removed into federal court, included patent, patent issues, that that is an issue arising under federal patent law and would typically need to be transferred to the Federal Circuit before this court transfers an appeal to the Federal Circuit, the Seventh Circuit's decision in the Oral Labs case, which we also cite, asks this court to determine, is there a real live appellate issue that would justify the transfer to the
0: Federal Circuit? All right. And that brings he, us back to your point that there is no uh, effective uh, relief that may be afforded. Exactly, Your Honor. Now, what about nominal damages in contract cases? and? Um, I never uh, have well, i haven 't practiced in the Minnesota courts for over thirty years at this point but but you know it seems like the nominal damages claims are all over the place as to whether or not they 're available in contract are they uh, when they are when they 're not under what circumstances and And I just have been having a hard time wrapping my head around them. Uh, But I'm assuming that that the claim is going to be made that at least in this contract breach case, the case that we have before us, we're entitled to at least nominal damages, and that keeps the case alive. Why why would that be wrong?
3: Well, CSI has never suggested that they are entitled to nominal damages here. CSI Mm -hmm. had an opportunity uh, and was required under its Rule 26 disclosures to come forward and say what the basis of the damages that it was seeking here was. CSI declined to identify anything. CSI... Said it's something to the effect of uh, discoveries ongoing, we'll wait and see about damages. But more specifically...
0: But, but the whole point of nominal damages is that you can't prove damages, but you're entitled to at least nominal damages if you can't prove damages. Isn't that right? Or did I just like miss a week in law school?
3: I, I think that's right in terms of what the concept
0: of nominal damage is.
3: Here, CSI has not been asking for nominal damages.
0: So they've got to tell you that, that, by the way, if we don't get damages, we want nominal damages?
3: I think that they need to make it clear what relief that they are seeking. And I think that Rule 26 requires a party to identify the damages that it's seeking. In this case, the district court, during a hearing on a discovery motion trying to test CSI's theory, put it to CSI directly, what is your theory of damages in the case? And CSI responded that... For this case, it was more of an injunctive and declaratory relief case, not a damages case. Thank you. Uh, This court's decision in the Myers versus Richland County case, I would commend to all of your honors as a case that squarely addresses whether someone other than the initial party to a settlement agreement can come into court under ancillary enforcement jurisdiction. In Myers, it was a third party beneficiary theory, Uh, it was an individual who had testified at a deposition. Uh, There was a a provision in the contract that prevented retaliation against people who had helped the gender discrimination plaintiff in the underlying case. Um, And this court recognized that he had standing and could pursue, on a third-party beneficiary theory, a claim for breach of that uh, settlement agreement, at least as far as jurisdiction went. Um, Other decisions, such as the Ninth Circuit's decision in the Volkswagen Clean Diesel case, and the Fourth Circuit's decision in the Orlando residence case stand for the same proposition that someone who was not an original party to the case or original party to the settlement agreement um, can assert ancillary enforcement jurisdiction. Um, there was also original subject matter jurisdiction because the well-pleaded complaint necessarily raised substantial issues of federal patent law. Namely, in order to prove infrin- in order to prove breach of Section 3A, the provision of the contract that CSI asserted in this case, CSI needed to prove that there was an infringement of some patent licensed under the Nadirishvili patent portfolio. Now, in its initial complaint, CSI ran away from the language of the contract, didn't put the contract in, but this court's decision in Gorog and related decisions Uh, Stands for the proposition that the court can look to the actual language of the contract. And here it necessarily raised patent infringement issues. Counsel, how does it
0: require interpretation of patents or does it have to?
3: It requires, in order to prove infringement of the patents, there's a two step inquiry. First, the court would have to look at the language of the patents and construe the claims of the terms of the patents. And then would have to look at whether specific devices practice all of the elements of the properly construed claims. And that's a necessarily federal inquiry because it deals with federal patent infringement questions.
0: Yeah, it seems that in order to interpret whatever this license covers, one needs to know what the underlying patents say, and that requires some construction. Um, and uh, this isn't a case in which there's a fully developed record on the construction of the patents where we could say, yeah, we don't got to decide anything because sitting over here in Markman land, we have uh, an order of construction. We look at that order of construction, and then we're perfectly competent, even though we're not the federal circuit, to say, is that reasonable or not reasonable? Um, and, and we're not you know, deciding or construing that patent unless somebody challenges the underlying construction, right? Um, But here it seems like everything's kind of just floating around, and there has been no construction of this patent before it was settled, right? This case assigned uh, certain licenses and patent uh, privileges uh, in a way that – is not particularly plain on its face because we don't have them divided into two distinct categories where there's no possible uh, um, uh, overlaying uh, constructions, right? I mean, there was a way this could have been done. That could have been done like you have patents number blah, 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 blah. We have patents numbers blah, 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 blah. And we haven't given any, you know, mutually... uh, um, mutual licenses uh, to exercise the art on this in order to make the art on that work, which is kind of what this thing did, right? Does that make any sense? I know I'm using all sorts of indefinite statements there. but
3: It does, Your Honor. And, and it's important to remember that in this case, at the very outset of the case, when the court set its scheduling order, the court set deadlines for the mm-hmm. parties to come forward, present claim charts, and assert any theory of patent infringement that they had. At the time of the claim chart due date, Um, and and CSI was a couple weeks late, but shortly thereafter, CSI came forward with claim charts for unrelated patents, not patents under the Schvili patent portfolio, but unrelated CSI patents. It did not, until opposition to summary judgment, show up with a list and, and claim charts for patents that it alleged were implicated by this case. So... CardioFlow moved to strike those, um, those untimely infringement contentions. The district court ultimately denied that as moot, given that the district court resolved the issue on other grounds. But that's the reason why there is not a more detailed basis like there would be in a typical patent infringement lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I'd like to touch at least uh, on CSI's appealed issues, the equitable estoppel, and the agency piece. The district court correctly found that CSI's uh, claims in this case related to equitable estoppel, there was nothing pled in CSI's complaint. There are, I think, two mentions of accepting some benefit in the complaint. But if you read the actual language of CSI's amended complaint, and you read that in context, paragraph 16 of CSI's complaint says, Leland Adirishvili assigned the settlement agreement to CardioFlow. And paragraph 17, which refers to accepting it, says CardioFlow accepted that assignment. That's a theory that CSI was operating on, where this, the contract was actually assigned to CardioFlow. And ultimately, the district court found that that wasn't the case. The evidence did not support it. and Ms. Natarashvili did not assign the settlement agreement to CardioFlow. But CSI didn't plead an alternative basis for subjecting cardio flow to liability under that contract on an equitable estoppel theory. CSI was moving forward with a straightforward assignment theory that ultimately was not borne out by the facts. CSI never came forward with evidence that would support the elements of estoppel, a promise or inducement, reliance by CSI or some harm to CSI from not enforcing that initial promise or inducement. This simply was not an equitable estoppel case. It has never been an equitable estoppel case. CSI has attempted to pivot to something which it refers to as an acceptance of the benefits estoppel. It cites a number of non-Minnesota cases as well as this court's decision in the Carnet's case. The Carnet's case, I think, is instructive because even if this court were to Uh, believe that that is a valid concept. In the Carnet's case, reliance was important, and there simply is no reliance here on the part of CSI.
0: You know, everybody keeps talking about this as a species of equitable estoppel, and perhaps it is, but I keep looking at it. It seems like it's an ordinary contract principle, that having accepted the benefits of the contract, you either are bound uh, to fully perform the contract or you're bound to rescind, and you don't have any choice in between. Um, and I don't see that as an equitable thing. I see that as a contract thing. Am I, am I wrong on that?
3: I, I think you are, Your Honor. And, and here's the issue. CardioFlow accepted an assignment of patents. There's no dispute about that. Right. And the settlement agreement authorized Lila Nadirishvili to assign patents to CardioFlow. CardioFlow took that assignment. Mm -hmm. There's a separate provision of the settlement agreement, Section 10 of the settlement agreement, which allowed but did not require Nadirishvili to assign the entire settlement agreement to CardioFlow. CardioFlow didn't take the contract. CardioFlow took patents that Ms. Naderishvili owned. And I heard Mr. Danis say that the Section 10 includes a provision that they must assign the settlement agreement along with the patents. And that's actually contrary to the language. The language says Ms. Naderishvili may assign. The contract frequently uses may in its traditional permissive sense, and it uses shall, I think, 16 times shall or must in a mandatory sense. The final theory that CSI asserted here at the district court in opposition to summary judgment was an agency theory. CSI essentially said, if not a contract principle, then there must be some kind of joint venture here, Um, or the Cargill situation, which is a very unique situation, uh, which I'll get to in just a minute. But in terms of that joint venture, there are four elements of a joint venture they are set out in the Duxbury case. And in order to have a joint venture, all of the elements must be met. There has to be not just joint investment in something, but mutuality of control over the joint venture. There's no evidence that Ms. Naderishvili had control over some kind of joint venture. And Minnesota cases, especially the Renberg case which we cite, are clear that a corporate entity – is not a joint venture. CSI's theory in the district court seemed to be that somehow CardioFlow, a pre-existing Delaware corporation, was somehow a joint venture as opposed to a corporation. That simply is not the law in Minnesota. Uh, I see them out of time. Um, thank you, Honors.
0: Thank you. Mr. Dennis.
1: Uh, thank you very much. I just wanted to, to address a couple of points from uh, my, um, my colleague on the other side. Uh, first, there is um, no arising under federal patent uh, jurisdiction in the district court here. Uh, we went through the four gun factors which are determinative of that inquiry. Uh, in which it would have to be, the patent question would have to be both necessary and quote-unquote substantial. Uh, it was not necessary because, as pleaded, we had two different theories of breach under Section 3 of the of the settlement agreement, uh, one of which was the license under Nadirishvili patent portfolio that might require some patent questions to be answered. The other was an exclusive right Uh, in general, irrespective of patents. Under that theory of liability, there was no patent question that was raised. Uh, Under the gun factors, that would mean that a patent question is not necessary in this case. And even if it were, the patent questions here would not be substantial. Uh, In our brief, our supplemental brief, we cited the inspired development case from the Federal Circuit, uh, which is quite recent. And then in our uh, principal, or in our reply brief, rather, We cited Antenna Systems, uh, 976, F3rd, 1374, a Federal Circuit case from 2020. Both of those cases say that if the patent questions are garden variety, uh, that would not uh, necessarily govern other cases, that are not uh, about abstract legal principles, but essentially are just very fact-bound patent questions. These are ones that state courts can handle in a case like this. Uh, so, under the gun test, there is no arising under patent jurisdiction here. Um, to address the appellate jurisdiction question, uh, in in the uh, m- my my opponent makes much about this idea that we have waived our right to uh, to contest the injunction or our in- claim for injunctive relief in the district court's order. Uh, the reason uh, that we did not separately addressed that was because the district court's uh, decision on the injuncture of relief uh, issue was two sentences long and said simply that because there's no exclusive right, you can't get an injunction. What the district court d- did not uh, address at all in its opinion, or at least not in that section, was whether an injunction can be had for a breach of the exclusive license that the district court found survived if this court is going to reverse either on the equitable estoppel or agency bases that we've laid out, we are able to seek injunctive relief under uh, the U.S. Valves versus Dray case that I cited earlier. Um, to Your Honor's point uh, as, as well earlier, uh, the, in the equitable estoppel uh, issue, whether there was reliance, that's something that we uh, have explained was the fact that we entered the settlement agreement and the plain language of Section 10, showing that because we were protected or we had bargained for and obtained the protection from our rights being assigned without the concomitant uh, protection of the uh, exclusive license, that we would never would have entered it. That's plain in the, uh, from the face of the settlement agreement.
0: Thank you. Your um, time has
1: expired. Yes, thank you very much.